This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, and this is The Full Story. Earlier this month, China ended its diplomatic freeze with Australia when the two countries' defence ministers met in person for the first time in over two years. It is really important in these times to have open lines of dialogue. Australia and China's relationship is complex, and it's precisely because of this complexity that it is really important that we are engaging in dialogue right now. On the surface, it seemed like a big step forward from the bitter disputes over trade and the pandemic. But as the two countries continue to wrestle for influence in the Pacific, how much can Australia's relationship with China really improve under the new Albanese government? Today, what happens after the freeze ends? It's Thursday, the 23rd of June. What does the end of a diplomatic freeze between two countries actually look like? Uh, Well, I mean, apart from a lot of analogies in headlines about freezes and unfreezes and putting all that to a side, the main first step is actually talking. Daniel Hurst is the Foreign Affairs and Defence Correspondent for Guardian Australia. And that's what we saw happen at a defence and security conference in Singapore last Sunday, 12th of June. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. We've done very well. There was a 29-minute coffee break and only 33 minutes were taken forward, so that's not uh, too bad. We're starting at 11.33 or so. The third plenary... It's known as the Shangri-La Dialogue. It happens every year. Basically, defence ministers from around the world gather there along with officials and If you're into security and if you're in a position of power, you tend to go to those things and swap notes. The theme is developing new forms of security cooperation. It's a theme that was already touched on a little bit. At this year's summit, we had defence ministers from dozens of countries. It was the first one sort of in the post-pandemic setting. And there were a bunch of security analysts and officials. And from Australia, we had the new defence minister, Richard Miles, who also happens to be Deputy Prime Minister. Deputy Prime Minister, Defence Minister of Australia. Floor is yours. Three weeks ago, Australians elected a new government under the leadership of Anthony Albanese. But it was on the third day of that conference that something really consequential happened, not something that came out any of the sessions or speeches themselves, but a meeting on the sidelines between Australia and China's defence ministers. The dialogue was also an opportunity for uh, me to meet with my Chinese counterpart, Defence Minister Wei, uh, which I did earlier today. Hmm. What do we know about this meeting? So we know that Miles met with China's Minister of National Defence, General Wei Fenghe. We know it lasted for about an hour in a meeting room at the Shangri-La. There were other senior officials in the room too. And we know the ministers posed for an awkward elbow bump photo, a sort of staple of the pandemic. (laughs) We don't know a lot about exactly what was said. What was really significant is that it's three years since defence ministers of our two countries have met. This was an important meeting. It marked the first time the Chinese and Australian defence ministers had met in person since November 2019. That previous meeting was prior to the pandemic beginning, when the former defence minister Linda Reynolds greeted Wei at a regional meeting in Thailand. And so this is a bit of a sign that the volume might be going down a notch in the tense relationship between China and Australia. It was an opportunity to have a very frank and full exchange. It was 
a critical first step. Right. So, Dan, before we get into this meeting and what came out of it, I wonder if you could take us back a bit. Two and a half years seems like a long time for these ministers to go without meeting at all. Why has it taken this long and what's what's been going on here? Yeah, so to understand this, you have to go back as far as 2017. Around this time, the relationship between Australia and China was already starting to get somewhat frosty. The Prime Minister, today I'm introducing legislation to counter the threat of foreign states exerting improper influence over our system of government and our political landscape. The then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, introduced new tougher laws against foreign interference, spying and secretive influence efforts. And he actually made clear in public, like he's told Parliament, that these laws were partly motivated by concerns about China's activities. Now, media reports have suggested that the Chinese Communist Party has been working covertly to interfere with our media, our universities and even the decisions of elected representatives right here in this building. China was not impressed by that at all. Mm. We take these reports very seriously. Turnbull also slapped a ban on the Chinese telco Huawei in building the 5G rollout in Australia. And then on top of that, during Scott Morrison's time in office, a few things happened that strained those ties even further. Mm. Firstly, we saw the Australian government become an early and vocal advocate for an independent international investigation into the origins of COVID-19. Now, it would seem entirely reasonable and sensible that the world would want to have an independent assessment of how this all occurred. I don't think this is a remarkable suggestion. And more controversially, Scott Morrison even spoke about having weapons inspector-style powers for people to go in and inspect future pandemics. The Chinese government took all this as being directed against it, and it argued the Australian government was just going along with the Trump administration in in attacking China, or that was the, the line they pursued. And at the same time, the Australian government raised concerns about China's crackdown on dissent in Hong Kong and human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Mm. And Beijing branded all this as unfriendly meddling, even calling it a crusade against it. Well, clearly China's being more assertive. And you've seen in that uh, list of uh, uh, 14 demands or grievances uh, that, they, that they issued. Jane, I'm sure you remember China's embassy at the time put out a 14-point list. Some Australian media outlets called it a list of grievances. That's what it became known as. They go to the heart of who we are, our free press, um, our parliamentary democracy. And it included things like Australia blocking Chinese investment on opaque national security grounds. It also hit out at antagonistic Australian media reports about China. And it said that um, Australian politicians were engaging in outrageous condemnation of the Communist Party. These were all things that China raised as difficulties in the relationship and they wanted movement on those things. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, in all seriousness, though, Prime Minister, what you're saying is here that, I mean, these, these 14 demands, there is no way you're backing down to any of them. Australia can never compromise our own national interests and hand how we make our laws over to any other country. Right, so this amounts to a series of problems over time building up in the relationship between Australia and China. So what did this all lead to? So after this, China basically cut off all high-level communication. And even though we talk about a diplomatic freeze, it's important to keep in mind that Lower level diplomats and officials did keep talking, you know, like they, they would they would meet each other and say, we raise concerns about X, Y and Z. But the freeze really meant China didn't allow any phone calls or meetings between Australian ministers and their direct counterparts from early 2020 onwards. So at a political level, ministers couldn't talk to each other. Mm. Meanwhile, we saw headlines about a trade war between China and Australia. 
Beijing in 2020 introduced steep tariffs, unofficial bans, sometimes higher screening requirements on a range of Australian export sectors such as barley, beef, wine and coal. There was a period where ships with millions of dollars worth of Australian coal remained stranded off the Chinese coast, unable to unload their cargo. China targeted Australian wine exports, imposing tariffs of up to 212%. Hmm. And that was a massive blow to the industry because China accounted for nearly 40% of Australia's total wine exports. And then an estimate down the track suggested that Australia's total exports to China fell by about $5.5 billion in a year. So, you know, this had a big impact and Australian politicians from both major parties said these actions from the Chinese government appeared to be designed to pressure Australia into making policy changes. Things like being more open to allow Chinese foreign investment, uh, allowing Huawei into the 5G network, things like uh, not speaking up so loudly on human rights, things like not targeting China under the foreign interference laws. Was there any attempt at the time from Australia's side to mend the fences with China? Yeah, so we did see some statements from the Morrison government at the time that they were trying to de-escalate the tension. The former PM, Scott Morrison, said that Australia is not and has never been in the economic containment camp on China, so that Australia doesn't want to contain or suppress China economically. And he said no country had pulled more people out of poverty than China. Mm. But then there was that particularly controversial tweet by a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson who um, posted a computer-generated image of an Australian soldier cutting the throat of a child in Afghanistan. The repugnant post made today. It is utterly outrageous and it cannot be justified on any basis whatsoever. When that happened in late 2020, Morrison said it was unacceptable. Australia is seeking an apology from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But he also uh, went out of his way to say, look, it's time to talk. Australia would welcome the resumption of ministerial and leader-level talks. The then Trade Minister, Dan Tian, also wrote to his counterpart saying, let's talk, let's ease the trade tensions, but he never got a meeting either. And at the same time, the Australian government became increasingly concerned about China's military build-up. And... I'm very pleased to join two great friends of freedom, Prime Minister Johnson and President Biden. It went on to sign that deal with the US and the UK called AUKUS. A new trilateral defence partnership with the aim of working hand in glove to preserve security and stability in the Indo-Pacific. To acquire nuclear-powered submarines. Thank you, Boris. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Thank you very much, pal. Beijing took this move as provocative because Australian officials have said openly that these nuclear-powered submarines are partly designed for Australia to be able to project power further north, as in into the South China Sea, which is getting closer and closer to China's territory. Mm. Fast forward to the recent election campaign, and that was thrown off course somewhat by China signing a security deal with Solomon Islands, 1,600 kilometres from Cairns. Uh, well, uh, it is true that the sovereign, Solomon Islands is a, uh, is a sovereign nation, uh, but that doesn't absolve Mr Morrison of his responsibility as Australia's leader. Right, and we've covered the Solomon Islands Security Pact with you on the podcast. When that was finalised during the Australian election campaign, Labor called it the worst failure of Australian foreign policy in the Pacific since the end of World War II. And despite Mr Morrison's tough talk on his watch, uh, our region has become less secure 
and the risks Australia faces have become greater. That's right, strong words. <laughs> and now they're in government and, and trying to mend uh, fences with the Pacific. Mm. But to quickly rehash this, essentially it was a security agreement that would pave the way for an enhanced Chinese military and police uh, presence on Solomon Islands. It was a deal that was drawn up in secret and it shocked Australia and its allies when it was leaked. Western countries and some Pacific leaders have raised concerns that an increased Chinese security presence in the Pacific would destabilise the region and lead to a sort of geopolitical spiral. Australia, New Zealand and the US are particularly worried the deal could allow China to establish a regular military presence there. Mm. Now, Beijing and Honiara have always denied that there was an intention for a military base and the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison sought to rely on that assurance, even though he still had big concerns about what the deal could lead to down the track. Right. So after China and Solomon Islands signed this security pact in April, what happens next? Yeah. So as we mentioned, this all happened about a month before Australians headed to the polls in May. And during this time and in the lead up to the election, we did see the relationship with China come up quite a bit in the headlines. We saw pre-election accusations from Morrison and his Defence Minister Peter Dutton that Labor would appease China if it won the election. And Dutton repeatedly said he had no doubt the Chinese Communist Party wanted the Morrison government to lose. That's something Labor denounced at the time as a conspiracy theory. But we also heard from China that it would seek to improve the relationship after the election, whichever party happened to win. We heard from diplomatic sources saying they saw a good opportunity to ease tensions in the period after the vote. A Chinese diplomatic source who didn't wish to be named said China was genuine in its wish to improve the relationship with Australia. But these officials didn't offer specific actions that China would take, such as removing the trade actions against Australian exporters. And so it wasn't quite clear how the relationship exactly would improve after the election. Then, of course, Labor won the election and we started to see the end of this diplomatic freeze. Next, how is Australia's relationship with China faring under the new Labor government? Right. So, Dan, as you say, Labor wins the election. And then just one month later, there's this security conference in Singapore where China and Australia's defence ministers meet for the first time in over two years. Let's go back to this moment. Tell me how this all played out. Yeah. So on the Friday night, they were both seated at the same table when they were watching the opening speeches of this security conference. And they had this sort of chance encounter, I suppose you might say. (laughs) That's how the meeting came about today. Um, It was hosted by China. Then on Sunday, it was suddenly revealed that they'd had their first official meeting. The meeting went for more than an hour. As I say, it, it, it was a really important meeting, an important first step. And Miles said they'd spoken about a number of key issues. But he claimed he wasn't able to go into the precise details, presumably not to risk this diplomatic rapprochement. Uh, beyond what I've already said, it's a conversation which I intend to uh, keep private. But clearly the tension is still there, and that was obvious in Miles' remarks following this meeting, where he brought up a few things, one of those being the importance of the South China Sea. When you think about the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which provides for the freedom of navigation of uh, vessels around all the oceans of the world, but including the South China Sea, you realise how completely important and fundamental this is to Australia's national interest. What is he referring to here, Dan? Well, Jane, one significant thing that has happened since the election is an incident in the South China Sea region. It's an increasingly contested region 
where China has a number of territorial claims that are contested by other countries. It's built up artificial islands and has been accused of militarising the region. And the Australian government, a few days before Miles travelled to Singapore, announced uh, details of this incident. On the 26th of May, a RAF P-8 maritime surveillance aircraft was intercepted by a Chinese J-16 fighter during routine maritime surveillance activity in the region of the South China Sea. Defence Minister Miles didn't reveal the exact location of the incident or exactly how close the planes came to each other, but he did outline some disturbing further details at a press conference. What occurred was that the J-16 aircraft flew very close to the side of the P-8 maritime surveillance aircraft. In flying close to the side, it released flares. The J-16 then accelerated and cut across the nose of the P-8, settling in front of the P-8 at very close distance. At that moment, it then released a bundle of chaff, which contains small pieces of aluminium, some of which were ingested into the engine of the P-8 aircraft. Quite obviously, this is very dangerous. So who's in the right and who's in the wrong here, Dan? Did either Australia or China break any international laws during this incident? Well, there are some conflicting views on this. The Australian government argues we had a right to have aircraft above the South China Sea. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, said this was international airspace, full stop. And the Defence Minister, Richard Miles, said we'll continue to fly there as it's within our interests to assert freedom of overflight and navigation. So Australia's view is we weren't doing anything wrong according to international law and therefore China's actions against the Australian aircraft were aggressive. Hmm. Right. And what's China's view? Well, the Chinese government, on the other hand, claims that Australian aircraft shouldn't have been in that area. The Chinese Ministry of National Defence said the Australian aircraft had entered the airspace near China's Shisha Islands. That's a disputed area also known as the Paracel Islands. And the ministry said this seriously threatened China's sovereignty and security. So it was basically justifying its own actions against Australian aircraft. Hmm. So we've got two directly conflicting views on the incident there. What do you make of this, Dan? Well, I spoke to a former Australian Army intelligence analyst by the name of Clinton Fernandez. He's now a professor of international and political studies at UNSW Canberra. And he told me there's a lively debate about what countries can do in other countries' exclusive economic zones. The issue is whether intelligence gathering and projecting power is acceptable. He says Australian aircraft and vessels were not just in the South China Sea region for sightseeing. He says they dropped devices known as sonoboys into the water to detect the electronic signatures of vessels, including Chinese vessels, and this can allow us to identify them for future detection and potentially future attack in a conflict down the track. Mm. Australia and other countries also map the undersea terrain to work out where submarines could actually travel before they enter the deep waters of the Pacific. Fernandez says this difference of opinion about what can be done in exclusive economic zones should be worked out through diplomacy and negotiation before it escalates into an incident like this or even a war. Right. So clearly the tensions between Australia and China remain significant and they're not going to be resolved in just one meeting between defence ministers. What are the other issues Australia and China have wrestled with since the election? Well, the other thing we've seen is really continuing tensions over China's presence in the Pacific and attempts to increase its, its footprint. Australia and China have been vying for influence. Under Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, 
Australia will take our place in the world with confidence. Australia will embark on a new era of engagement with the Pacific. Indeed, we already have. Okay, so what, is it, what does it look like, China and Australia both vying for influence in this region? Well, a lot of frequent flyer points. Uh, China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi embarked on a marathon eight-country visit to the Pacific in late May and early June. It was a bit after the election. And we saw a sweeping economic and security deal proposed by China that would have involved 10 Pacific Island nations covering policing, security and data communications cooperation. Mm. It sort of flagged everything from a free trade area in the region to providing humanitarian and COVID relief. And it laid out China's vision for a much closer relationship with the Pacific, especially on security matters, with China proposing it would be involved in training police, cybersecurity, sensitive marine mapping, and gaining greater access to natural resources. And then at the same time, we've also seen Australia's new foreign affairs minister, Penny Wong, go on a charm offensive throughout the Pacific. And since the election, she's travelled to four Pacific Island nations, starting with Fiji, then Tonga and Samoa, and finally Solomon Islands. In her travels, Wong has placed a heavy emphasis on listening to Pacific countries who have repeatedly said action on the climate crisis is a bigger priority for them than geopolitical rivalries. I acknowledge that and I understand that under past governments, Australia has neglected its responsibility to act on climate. And on a two-day visit to Fiji just four or five days after she was sworn in as Foreign Affairs Minister, Wong said Australia wanted to show it was a reliable and trustworthy partner to Pacific countries and was determined to make up for what she described as a lost decade on climate action. Ignoring the calls of our Pacific family to act, disrespecting Pacific nations in their struggle to adapt to what is an existential threat. She said, Australia would increase its contribution to regional security and work together with Pacific countries like never before. Hmm. And Australia will be a partner that doesn't come with strings attached, nor imposing unsustainable financial burdens. We're a partner that won't erode Pacific priorities or Pacific institutions. We believe in transparency. The fundamentals are the same. Australia still has concerns about China's security uh, footprint. And while in Fiji, Wong urged Pacific countries to weigh up the consequences of accepting security offers from Beijing, saying the region should really determine its own security. And in a setback for China, the deal that Wang Yi had proposed was declined at a crucial meeting of Pacific foreign ministers at the end of May. It would be wrong to think that's the end of the matter, though. China is now trying to build regional support for a list of principles for further cooperation in the region. Hmm. So it's a difficult dance that Australia is trying to do with both Pacific Island nations on one side and China on the other. And we're seeing these kind of dueling charm offences from both Australia and China in the region at the same time. Are there any other points of tension between the countries at the moment? Well, there are, and Chinese state media suggested on Monday the 13th of June that Australia should think about walking away from groups such as AUKUS and the Quad to repair ties with China. So AUKUS is that big security agreement with the US and the UK, and you know, there's been a lot of focus on the push for nuclear-powered submarines, but it also flags much greater cooperation on advanced technologies, including hypersonics, undersea warfare more generally, quantum computing, all things that will be part of the future of warfare. And the Quad has really been reinvigorated in the last few years. It's Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. It's not technically an alliance, but it is uh, a grouping where they where the leaders meet to discuss security issues and other issues in the region. 
the Chinese government has long presented both those things as being anti-China forces, uh, but there's no prospect of the Australian government walking away from it because the new Labor government has reinforced its support for both of them. And then you have that ongoing issue of the trade tensions. Prime Minister Albanese declared last week that he wanted Beijing to remove the trade sanctions against Australian exporters as the next vital step towards improving the relationship. In other words, the ball's in its court. And then the Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong vowed to take every opportunity to demand the Chinese government scrap those unjustified trade strikes. And Australia's new trade minister, Don Farrell, said he wanted to speak with China's Commerce Minister, Wang Wentao, on the sidelines of a World Trade Organization conference they were both attending in Geneva last week. But Wang was unavailable, so it's not like there's this sudden second meeting to get things back on an even keel. Mm. The Australian government is also insisting it won't shy away from raising human rights concerns about China. It hasn't spelt these out specifically lately, but these obviously would include issues in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. Right. So despite the fact that the Chinese government wants to reset the relationship with the Australian government post-election, there are still some underlying tensions. So really, this meeting between the two ministers seems like a pretty tentative step towards mending fences, without some bigger shift in policy at least. Has anything really changed then in the two countries' relationship? Yeah, well, clearly the Australian government has shifted the way it's talking about the relationship with China. You're not seeing the sorts of statements we used to see from the previous government, things like Peter Dutton's blunt declarations, you know, that Beijing wants to turn countries like Australia into tributary states. Uh, Dutton also had said last year that Australia would almost certainly join any US-led military action to defend Taiwan against invasion by China. This is not something that has been repeated by the new government. Anthony Albanese's government has reverted to what's really Australia's long-standing bipartisan position for decades, that there should be no unilateral changes to the status quo. At the same time, the Australian government is still committed to policies and stances that China opposes. And this idea was actually perfectly summed up by Miles himself. And we do want to have a productive relationship with China in the context of making it very clear that, that this happens without any conditions at all. So I think the takeaway here is that we're about to see the Albanese government embark on a grand experiment, one which asks, is a different tone alone enough to get the relationship on a better footing? Uh, in moving forward, uh, while there is a change of tone, there is absolutely no change in the substance of Australia's national interests. And that brings me to the question that you ask in respect. Okay, so Dan, has anyone told you whether there's any indication that this softly, softly approach is actually going to work? Well, broadly speaking, there's a bit of um, scepticism in Canberra about this point. I spoke with Richard Maud, a former senior Australian intelligence and foreign affairs official. He reckons the big unanswered question is whether adopting a different tone while maintaining broad continuity on all the policies China opposes is going to be enough to sustain a relationship in which high-level political dialogue resumes and trade coercion ends. Maud says he doesn't think the new government is under any illusions about how hard that might be, and he thinks a change in tone may be helpful, but there are many challenges. Mm. Some of those challenges are that China has dug itself very firmly into its positions over the last few years, and also in Australia there's political pressure to maintain the strong line on China. Maud doesn't believe Australia should concede anything substantial on the main points of disagreement, but there could be some areas for productive discussions to move the relationship forward. For example, climate change would be an obvious area for talks between the two countries. 
health security, despite all the bad blood about the pandemic and the origins investigation, is an obvious area, says Maud, for further discussions. Uh, you know, for example, China and Australia could cooperate on tropical medicine or cancer research. And there's also the possibility of some cooperation on development. So these are all options for, you know, very tentative next steps, opening a discussion with China without sort of either side suggesting that there's going to be some great back down by the other side. That was Guardian Australia's Defence and Foreign Affairs correspondent, Daniel Hurst. You can find all of Dan's reporting about Australia's relationship with China on theguardian.com, including his article covering the recent meeting of their defence ministers called Thor or Cold War? Will Labor succeed in unfreezing Australia-China relations? We'll post a link to this in our show notes. This episode was produced by Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. Full Story's executive producers are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson and Laura Murphy-Oates. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.